right. start then. Let's go. Let's do this thing. Don't include that in the podcast. That sounds stupid. What? Let's do this thing. Yeah, don't say that. It's well, that's going to be in the podcast now. No, it's not. Yes. Right. Okay. Silence. Hello and welcome to episode 59 of the world famous Tetraboards all G Ford Langs. I'm an, I'm an amendment to be. Yes, an amendment to be. And you are? Uh, Jimmy? Which one? Jimmy, oh, that's on kid. the stairs. Uh, it's Jimmy, right. isn't it? Or is it Timmy? Uh, whatever. <laughs> Drinking. Drinking games, in effect. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Um, now then. Now then, now then, now. Don't say that. I know who you sound like. Uh, well, it's been a while since the last one. We've um, uh, put it off for a couple of weeks for various reasons. Again, so much on right now. Crazy. Yep. So, what do we do? Do we work through the agenda? <laughs> that was the re- reason we have an agenda. Okay, wait. So, <laughs> let's start with... Uh, hello, listeners, and let's start with F.U. F.U., Darren. F.U., John. So, right. First of all, this spanky in the thing, okay? <laughs> right. <laughs> For those of you who haven't listened to the previous episode, it's titled The Spankian Stage because in listing off the geological stages... John thought that I said... <laughs> I have audio evidence. <laughs> Devious Spankian evidence. Spankian to Arsian. <laughs> Spankian to Arsian. <laughs> okay, there's actually my mangled pronunciation of... It was part of Pleensbachian, or Pleensbachian, if you prefer. So, the end part of Pleensbachian, Pleensbachian, Barkian, Spankian, Spankian, Spankian... I accidentally stuck an extra N in there, hence Spankian. <laughs> and then the next stage after the Pleinsbachian is the, is the Toarsian. <laughs> so Pleinsbachian, Toarsian. There you go. I'm glad we got that sorted out. Um, we had an interesting follow-up, and I can't remember who it's from. Something We had a, a discussion based on a question about blood feeding, whether it was more common in nocturnal animals or diurnal ones. And we said something about nocturnal nocturnal blood feeding being insects that drink blood being mostly nocturnal no absolutely wrong well we did backtrack on that yeah we were sort of all over the place because we realized we didn't have any idea what we're talking about yeah so and and thank you to whoever pointed out (laughs) we didn't know what we're talking about because there's like biting midges and stuff that are diactive and such yeah 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 it's called the tetrapod zoology podcast yeah not that not that insect podcast whatever the hell they are (laughs) never heard of insects uh i went through a phase of wanting to be an entomologist as a kid (laughs) so you're gonna say insect i wanted to be an insect (laughs) yeah that's a shame you didn't say insect. Um, yeah, <laughs> did you? Did but you don't like? Do you like them now? Uh, well, yeah, I, I, yeah. How can you not? I mean, everyone, you know, beetles and bugs and things. Yeah, I, I, I know. Quite how can a bit you about. not? Well, well, yeah, yeah. yeah. fascinating creatures. Yeah. There's a. If I had the whichever book it is with me now, there's this brilliant quote in one of Darwin's books where he says that um, he's talking about particular beetles. Um, like, I think maybe some of the rhinoceros beetles or something. And he says, 
and I paraphrase, if this creature were to be um, imagined like a thousand fold larger than it really is, not super size, but if it was the size of a mid-sized animal, like say a large dog, it would be regarded as one of the most spectacular and beautiful creatures in existence. And uh, you look at insects and their mechanical intricacy and the sheen of their carapaces and stuff and it's like yeah you know it's uh, they're crazy they're so alien compared to us boring old tetrapods so uh, yeah i do like arthropods but um but they don't interest me in the same way although when you look at when you look at the molecular phylogenies for insects all the surprises they come up with lately it's wow okay yeah stop <laughs> stop there no, Go. no. <laughs> it's not the hexapod <laughs> zoology podcast hexapod <laughs> So, so, shall we move on to the um, news? News. News yes. from the world of news. News from the world of news, exactly. Yeah. Right, now, when I thought about what we should talk about in this episode, as, go, as goes news in the world of news, I thought, let's not, we don't want it to be Mesozoic dominated. We want to be talking about those interesting new studies on mice <laughs> and, uh, and parental care in lizards and stuff. But uh, no, let's be honest. Um, there's some some gee whiz um, dinosaur themed papers that have caught the attention of uh, the internets. And um, okay, so should we do like? Yeah. Which, yeah. Uh, what? So well, okay. like, look at the you wrote this um, this uh, agenda. Just let's wrote... just do it in the order it's in. News All from right. the world of news or Nithoscalida. Right. So, for those of you who, for the two of you that haven't heard, there was a paper published uh, about, oh, I don't know, uh, two weeks ago-ish? Yeah, something like that. Uh, by um, Matthew Barron, David Norman and Paul Barrett. Norman and Barrett, obviously both well-known dinosaur uh, experts based here in the UK. David Norman at Cambridge, Paul Barrett at the Natural History Museum in London. Matthew Barron is a PhD student, and um, this paper is in uh, Nature, and it's titled A New Hypothesis of Dinosaur Relationships and Early Dinosaur Evolution. So as anybody who's ever read a dinosaur book or ever opened a book on dinosaurs will know, it is thought that very early on in their evolution, dinosaurs split into two lineages, Ornithischia, so your so-called plant-eating dinosaurs, not all of which ate plants, but... Um, armored dinosaurs, so stegosaurs and chylosaurs and pachycephalosaurs and ceratopsians and ornithopods. Then the other branch, sauroscians, which includes sauropodomorphs, which is sauropods and their kin, and theropods and birds. So the sauroscia dichotomy goes back to the 1880s, and it's been um, over the years, I mean, you know, without going off on a tangent about history, it has been contested a couple of times. There was a time when Ornithischia and Saurischia were both thought to come from different ancestors. It was even proposed at one time that the different Saurischian groups, Sauropodomorphs and Theropods, came from different ancestors. It's been suggested on a couple of occasions that Sauropodomorphs might be close kin of Ornithischians. But by and large, this dichotomous view has uh, stood up. And uh, since the phylogenetic revolution which I suppose started in the 80s, 1980s, um, mm-hmm. a lot of data has supported, has been provided to, you know, anatomical support has come in supporting the view that Ornithischia and Saurischia are both clades and their sister tags, so the sister clades. So it is with some surprise that this paper proposes something quite different. This paper proposes that 
Sauropodomorphs are outside a clade that includes theropods and ornithischians. So this means that Saurischia of tradition uh, is, is uh, broken down. And Baron et al. proposed that this theropod ornithischian clade should be called Ornithoscelida, which is a name first published by Thomas Huxley back in the late 1800s when they had a different view of uh, the composition of Dinosauria. And I've got a tetrapod zoology article on this, which kind of summarizes the salient points. I would recommend interested people to go there or read the paper, whichever you prefer. Um, and um, the the main reason for coming up with this new hypothesis is that people have noted for a while that early ornithischians are somewhat theropod-like in a few characters. And what Baron and colleagues did is they went and looked at all the early ornithischians in greater detail than people had before. There's a whole bunch of these animals, mostly from southern Africa and a few from South America as well. And, um, yeah, they collected a ton of phylogenetic information on them and found over 20 characters that seem to be shared by early ornithischians and early theropods and which are not present in early sauropodomorphs. Yep. That's the crux of the matter, isn't it? It is. It's certainly not ordinary for people to come up with oh I've generated a new cladogram to get a paper like that into nature that's not ordinary this is only <laughs> because it's it's regarded as such a paradigm buster that's yes. why it's uh, yeah and gotten all the publicity it has uh, I think that this uh, I think this um, paper has brought to light a lot of issues about the way we think about dinosaurs the things we put emphasis on when we're talking about dinosaurs. Because actually the phylogenetic, if you look at the actual evolutionary change we're proposing here, it's not big, right? There's yeah. like These early dinosaurs are all fairly similar. We're switching around a couple of nodes. Um, it's not It's not a earth-shattering <laughs> hypothesis in terms of evolution. If this happened at any other node that's less famous then no one would no care. one would care um exactly so the problem is that it is a very famous node it's based it's got to do with the definition of dinosaurs and it's got to do with the way we've taught about dinosaurs in pop science books for ages right this ornith ornithischia sauritia thing is in just about every book as an important thing you have to know and <clears throat> I think that was, especially in retrospect, but I always thought it was a bit, mm, was not a good way to teach about dinosaurs. Yeah, the I The Ornithischia-Sauritia <laughs> split was not important. Mm. Um, I think you could argue that theropods, sauropodomorphs, and ornithischians, if you want to think of dinosaurs in big clumps, that's a way to think of them, right? Yeah. But this two, this dichotomous split was just, although... Every split is probably, di or virtually every split is probably dichotomous in evolutionary terms. You know, some things split in two because um, to split in three at exactly the same time would be difficult and unusual, right? How does a population do that at exactly the same time? It's, well. <laughs> we don't want to get start talking about models of speciation, but uh, yeah. In, in, well, it, I, th I think we yeah. do want to talk about models of speciation because I think that's... <laughs> no, we don't. We do, because that's also in the next thing we're going to talk about. It's a big part of the paper. Oh, oh that. Okay, you're right, right, yeah. right, right. So, But I think it's worth talking about these things because 
this is actually what we're talking about when we're talking <laughs> because let's say that the split between Ornithischia, Saurischia, and Theropoda is literally within um, like twenty thousand years. What if yep. it's one population? It's they're all really, really close. Yeah. Um, this is worth considering. So models of speciation are worth considering when you're talking about things like this. Yes, uh, well, I think I think at this magnitude, with a, a group where this split has happened so long ago, and we don't have that many. Uh, data points by which i mean in this case obviously fossils of particular species that mm. cluster around the time of the divergence you just can't determine that we're really you know we're only just getting to grips with um assortative mating and lineage differentiation and when hybridization isn't isn't happening in for example hominins as as which is relevant to the neanderthal thing we discussed last time we're only just getting to grips with those groups and we know that when they do first split and as you say that is within you're talking about that happening within the range of a few tens of thousands of years or less um then yes at the just after the divergence you've still got um you know populations that are sharing genes between the different branches we don't have anywhere near enough this, this is a hypothetical discussion because we don't have near enough data points at that at that divergence points to support that. Um, but like a more important issue, I'd, I'd say that that is interesting. That is something yeah, yeah, yeah. But my, my point wasn't that we're going to ever know this. What I'm saying yeah. is that this could be the case. This is the kind of magnitude magnitude of thing that we could be talking about. It's a very very close split. So that I'm just saying the magnitude of the evolutionary change here could be absolutely tiny i would say so put this put this another way the the once we go back to the earliest members of these three lineages then the animals it would appear are approximately similar enough for any one of the uh, evolutionary models to be conceivable and the fact that we've just i don't want to say assumed but the fact that the data has seemingly supported this union between sauropodomorphs and theropods and oh don't worry there's no way that either of those lineages could be close to ornithischians that's probably being too confident about the the data but but i don't but saying that implies that people have just not even considered the possibility that there could be another model there could be another hypothesis and i I think that's that's stating things a bit too clearly i I don't think people have thought about it that much because they haven't really had to it's like well the data that we have at the moment you know there's nothing there's it should be normal in science to say that this is what we think now based on the data we have so i don't think anybody was particularly stupid or blinkered in saying that the data we have at the moment supports the monopoly of conventional traditional sauriscia and ornithischians are outside of that this new model says that that's not true that the data actually better supports according to what they stay in say in the paper um they say that the, the data better supports this other model that ornithischians do have more characters in common with with uh, theropods than with sauropodomorphs but I think it's yes. worth mentioning because a lot of people don't know how cladistics works. They think there's people actually arguing about which characters are important and things like this. That's yeah. not the way it works. You just collect as many characters as you possibly can and chuck them in a computer program, basically, is what's going on here. This is not the hypothesis of the authors as such. This is the hypothesis spat out by, what did they use, PALP or whatever, right? 
Do they use TNT? TNT. So I don't remember. Yeah, so one of these uh, classic yeah. programs. So the fact that the data supported Sauritia in the past is the is a function of the the characters that were put in. What's different mm. about this is they've gone and got more characters from these early ornithischians, right? Yes, yes. So so this is a, this is um. There's a couple of things to come off the back of that. One is that it, this. Okay, I'm not saying that they are right and that, that we are definitely committed to what they say. We'll come back to that in a second. But I also think it's good that this model, this hypothesis, could mean that the Ornithischia versus Sariskia dichotomy has broken down because that, as you said this a second ago, that makes people think that hip configuration is a magical like super okay john said that you don't you just chuck as many characters as you can into analysis that is partly true but people do also sometimes weight characters because they find they do think they have like some sort of special uh, exactly exactly how weighting i've, I've never done an analysis uh weighting's rare in cladistic analysis sure okay but but yeah. the point is that it does exist it, it is a thing and this exist, yeah. and this implies the sauriskia ornithischia dichotomy implies the hip configuration is weighted that it's a special thing that we heap special significance on which is reinforced by the fact that every single book talks about it i've disliked it because i've always disliked it because the more we've learned the more opaque it's this there is there isn't a simple dichotomy it's been argued that early ornithischians had a sauriskian hip configuration birds which have by definition <laughs> bird like hips are actually not ornithischians and we know that many non-bird sauriskians evolved bird-like hips so the, as i i'm going to quote what exactly what i said in the tetrapod zoology article um you have to imagine that you say well ornithischians have got bird-like hips except for some that might not so some of the earliest ones pisanosaurus has been said it might have sauriskian hips some sauriskians they're called lizard hip dinosaurs but their hips actually aren't really like there's a lizard at all um they actually have bird-like hips um most notably birds, which so birds are like actually bird hip thoriscians, but they're not actually bird hip dinosaurs. But technically, they are. They are bird hip dinosaurs because they're dinosaurs with bird like hips. Um, it's basically try and explain that to a lay audience for the first time, and it's like. I don't think it's okay to just say ornithischians got bird-like hips and sauriscians got lizard-like hips. I think that is a gross oversimplification, especially given as the the key thing being that birds are sauriscians, right? It's a it's a stupid. Yeah, it's yeah. it's annoying. So I'd be pleased to see the back of it, frankly. <laughs> yeah, um, but I think yeah, this has shaken it up enough that we can just stop talking about it like it's an important clade. Sauritia, even if it's real, is not a particularly useful clade to talk about. Anatomic. Then, right. But then there's two complications here. One is that um, you you mentioned definitions a second ago. Yeah. Now the authors have come up with a proposed set of of like how we should use again this is something that's that's of much interest among people interested in phylogenetics but nobody else really knows about or cares about then increasingly the names we have for groups of organisms are tied to specific parts of a family tree and we say that we've all understood for example for example we've always understood that the group tyrannosauridae has got to correspond to the group that includes tyrannosaurus rex but then which other species does it include the general feeling today is that we come up with a specific what we call a phylogenetic definition 
where we say that let's agree that Tyrannosauridae is the group that includes Tyrannosaurus rex and also includes, like, then you have some way of qualifying it. So typically people use a like a branch-based or a node-based definition. This is always hard to explain without diagrams. A branch-based definition is you say that it's everything on the branch that includes Tyrannosaurus rex and which isn't also on the branch that includes sparrows, velociraptors, oviraptor, ornithomimus, etc. Or you can say Tyrannosauridae is everything that descends from the most recent common ancestor of Tyrannosaurus rex and name your anchor early Tyrannosauroid Guanlong or whatever. Um, so the authors of this new study, they've done that. They've come up with some specific definitions for what they think they propose dinosaurus should be and what Sauriscia, etc. should be. And um, because they're, the shape of the tree they discover doesn't match previous definitions of what dinosauria are because previous studies have had dinosauria as this is a and the big and the big problem with this whole field is people have come come up with less than wise definitions to put it politically correctly <laughs> yes. less than clever definitions so a definition that many dinosaur workers follow is that dinosauria corresponds to the clade that includes triceratops and, and passer the sparrow which is a really stupid definition uh, this study finds um sauropodomorphs and herrerasaurs also to be outside that clade so john are you sad or are you sand <laughs> you've heard forgot, of bad yeah yeah i forgot i've forgotten which one uh, no. sauropods are not dinosaurs yeah. yeah or sad sauropods are dinosaurs yeah sauropods have to be dinosaurs otherwise yeah. the term's meaningless obviously uh, uh, well obviously if you're sensible you want sauropodomorphs and herrerasaurs well who, everyone says who cares about herrerasaurs because they've been in and out of dinosauria on a few occasions, but um, yeah, sauropodomorphs have got to be within our definition of dinosaurs. That's just it would just be really unwise at this stage to put them outside. It's like everyone understands everything about biology of uh, you know dinosauria is includes a concept of sauropodomorphs. So, um, but according to published phylogenetic definitions, uh, sauropodomorphs are not dinosaurs. So, Baron et al. have proposed a new definition. They've also yeah. proposed a new definition for Sauriscia, yeah. which, which I'm sure 99% of other workers would agree is, again, not wise. I, 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 why didn't they just scrap it? Just like, forget it. It's, that concept is broken now. If sauropodomorphs and theropods don't go together, don't redefine Sauriscia. Yeah, which they've done. They've got it as the Ararosaur sauropodomorph clade. No, just scrap it. Yeah, get rid of it. Uh, yep, agreed. Um, but this has led me to thinking, because what a disaster, right? If this was all formalized and that we had formalized the definition of dinosaurs being sparrows and triceratops, <laughs> this would be really bad. And we should just point out that what John says, what John just said, that means all the descendants of the most recent common yeah. ancestors, sparrows and triceratops. Yeah, not just those two, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, which has led me to the conclusion, which I've come up with, come up to, come to in the past, is that we don't, we should not use codes. We should not formalize codes like the Philo code, like the um, ICZN. 
mm. we should not use them because once things become formalized, you end up in these ridiculous, tricky arguments about stuff. And instead, okay. of, and instead of that, unformalized, what, what we're doing now is everyone's just going, ah, oh, yeah, whatever. We'll just, we'll just include um, Diplodocus or something in the definition and keep Dinosauria because what crazy worker is going to away, go away and say, you know what, I'm going to get rid of um, sauropods now. Mm. Because this stupid old definition. Everyone recognizes that the old definition was inadequate now. Yeah. And we can yeah. just change it on the fly in papers, which is great. Yeah. It's the way it should work. Well, that is, but that is the way it's working. The file no, hasn't no, no, been formally. Yeah, it, it hasn't it, been it, formally. So we shouldn't formalize it. Yeah, okay. Well, whether it is ever going to see. So, again, for those of you that don't know, there's this thing called the Filer Code. It was meant to have been formally implemented in the year. 200x and here we and here we are in 2017 and they haven't even published the um the 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 initial volume there's two volumes there's an initial volume saying what the file code recommends and best practice etc and there's a second volume or companion volume which is individual chapters on individual groups saying these are the definitions we propose and despite having Probably all the submissions that they asked for back in the early 2000s, the uh, editors have never published this uh, volume. And, uh, and uh, I've got like three or four or five articles in that volume, which were written in about 2005, 2006. And uh, they've just never appeared. And dis- despite the fact numerous, numerous iterations and re-editings and thrashings through it again and again, it's uh, so... So, frankly, I mean, the fact that everybody uses phylogenetic nomenclature, it's like, well, I think by now we can establish we don't need a formal phyla code. And also, like... Uh, Yeah, sorry. Well, like, okay, with the greatest of respect, some of the people who are the most um, prominent vocal proponents of the philosophy of the phyla code are also the ones that they, they come up with definitions that are just not particularly good or the opposite of good to the people that work on them the people that work on those groups they come up with like Jacques Gautier is one of the main people behind it and he's got this belief that a phylogenetic definition for a clade must correspond to the original historical interpretation of that group which which might sound like a good idea but isn't isn't the best idea, given that the concept of a group has evolved substantially over the time in which it's been understood. Yes, but I think that this sort of thing springs from the idea that these things are going to be formal and unchangeable, right? That once the definition is fixed, it's done. And this is just not the way the world works. It's unhelpful because it leads to, yeah, names get tied to particular taxa, but the taxa in between them change dramatically. So the content of groups changes dramatically, while the the specifiers don't. And I think that's mm. just it's just wrong. I I think that <laughs> um, I am I have come around to thinking that we don't want the Philo code. What is happening now is working better than would happen if we had a formal definition system in place because this would have been an absolute disaster whereas it is everyone can sort of laugh about it and say okay yeah let's let's come up with a better definition of dinosauria then right and use that yep going yeah forward. Uh, yeah uh, i mean don't say going forward <laughs> 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 sorry <laughs> in the future 
in the yeah, future. I, yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I am inclined to agree with you. But one, one, and as this, this, all of this is going to be quite intense as of our listeners. Sorry, but um, one more thing, which is a more sort of general wishy-washy thing, and that's that um, phylogenetic hypotheses are hypotheses. No. So what? No, that's just bollocks. What? Why is that just bollocks? Because they never get tested. So Sure, they do. What are you talking about? Test- they, they, they include their own test. So they're not hypotheses. Of course they are. No, they're not. By their very definition, yes, they are. Oh, explain. How can you- a, a, a hypothesis is a proposal, an idea that you come up with on the basis of a stack of evidence you've amassed. So you're saying that this is our interpretation of that particular pile of evidence our hypothesis is that the evidence it's a thesis it has evidence to support it i i maybe this is some deep philosophical thing where you're going to tell me that 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 that's not specifically what hypothesis means but your hypothesis the way you're using it is just hopelessly broad it's just any idea which is is which has as much evidence or as little evidence to support it as you like so that is evolution is a hypothesis no, evolution's a theory because it involves multiple hypotheses. So um, any phylogenetic hy- uh, cladogram includes multiple hypotheses about where things go. Oh, God, the, definition do- the definition doesn't work. That's what I'm saying. I mean, what? What? Okay. And it's, okay. it's a cheat. It's a cheat people use when they're talking about cladograms. So they'll say, oh, this is just a hypothesis. Then if it's just a hypothesis, we never arrive at any conclusion. We, I mean, it's just—it's not science. If it's just a hypothesis, it needs a test, and there's no other test. They include their own test. Uh, I don't know. So I do not so, like calling these things hypotheses. It just doesn't make sense. I mean, sure, as as in the trivial sense that all ideas, scientific ideas, start with a hypothesis, right? That's sort of mm-hmm. the idea. But hypothesis implies that it's as yet untested. Well, that's contrary to my understanding. What would you call a phylogenetic model then, if it's not a hypothesis? A model or a theory? A model or a theory. Okay, so I don't know. I'm gonna I'm gonna have to look into that because that is how I use hypothesis all the time. And I so and well, and so I mean, does... as words just get used, people. I mean, what do words mean? If people use them to mean certain things, then they do, even if that meaning is unclear or whatever. Like my my understanding is, you come. I up, hear you people come up... use it all the time. Yeah, go ahead. You well, I don't know whether you've whether whether what you've just said is valid. I'm, I'm going to look into that because that's interesting. But my uh, understanding. Okay, okay. Let's do this and avoid the word hypothesis then. Mm. So so these. These authors have come up with a model that that they contend conclude is supported by the data, right? Now, people that the the vast majority of people that will have seen this, that will be aware of this study, or will have seen news reports on this study, will have thought, will have concluded that oh, scientists are saying that their previous view of the family tree was wrong, and now they've got a version of the family tree that they now think is right. Mm. To a degree, that's kind of true, because the point of this paper is that the, the, the Baronetel model better explains the data, but it doesn't mean that it's like the final word, that this is the truth, and it's replaced a previous model that's been shown to be false. That's not really true. It's an alternative interpretation of 
a different set of data. So that's what we're saying at the moment. We're saying there's now this alternative model. Does it better? Does it better explain the data that we have? Well, there's people testing that. There's going to be a whole bunch of papers, which are already bloody in the works right now. People like um, checking their characters and stuff. And um, it doesn't, it doesn't, it's not like case closed. It's not, it overturns it. It's like, this is an alternative based on, based on the, the, the data we've, data we've got. But is it robustly supported by the data that they have? And they have, what people do in these big studies is they collect numerous um individual what are called character statements descriptions of of, an, of anatomy and then they code them for different species included in the data set does this species have that character does this does this not blah 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 and um let's just say at the moment that there are uh, it's there's some potential issues with some of the the strength of the how, how good the character evidence is if you actually look at all the Look yep. at all the characters because it's really easy to say and having worked with you know work routinely with people that have built enormous character sets it's well i don't i don't say it's easy to imply that it's a quick or you know uh, um lazy thing to do but it's it's very appealing to say oh yeah we've run up four thousand characters and everyone else has only done 50 characters so our analysis is uh, is much better um, and then you like, okay, there is a notorious person online who does this sort of thing. I don't want to mention his name, spoken about him enough times, but someone says, oh yeah, I've got this huge data set, hundreds of species, hundreds of characters. And, uh, so my data set easily trumps that one and which, which only had 20 characters in it. Well, it's like, go and actually look at the raw data, the character statements themselves, the species included, how they've been coded. And it's quite common within phylogenetic studies to find some degree of error, um, even the the best, most thorough worker in the world would have would have made a few mistakes or mis or misinterpreted things or whatever. Uh, a sloppy worker who's worked really quickly um, and doesn't really understand the groups concerned or doesn't understand anatomy uh, of some sections of an organ of, of organisms will have made many mistakes or or even have a data set that mostly consists of mistakes and um there there are there are such such cases again a particularly notorious example um that we've discussed here before so no i'm not saying that about baronetel's study but i am saying that if you check their individual character statements that are we absolutely sure that the 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 things absolutely super strongly support the particular model they've come up with and I'm saying there's already a few indications. Yes, Mickey Mortimer's pointed out some stuff. There's already a few indications that uh, some of the some of the support, some of the character support for this model is. Hmm. Uh, yeah. We'll see. Yeah. I mean, it would be truly surprising if it just suddenly switched and. Ornithoscelida was incredibly well supported in everyone's analysis. I mean, why would that be the case? Yeah. I mean, it's just, yeah, obviously some of the characters are going to be arguable and, yeah, and new characters are added might go in a different direction. They might go back to Zariskia, right? What's this got? It's got a lot of characters. 74 taxa and 457 characters. But it's possible when you add another 50 characters to that, so the support for uh, Ornithoscelider, I think, is 20 steps, right? So 20 characters, is that right? Is that how? 
something uh, like that. It, it it means that to get to get the previous relationship, you'd have to change the thing by twenty twenty steps or twenty nodes on the tree. Yeah, yeah, which is a big deal. One or two nodes, obviously, is not. But um, um but it's possible that you add fifty more characters. They all swing. They swing it to, back to yeah, Sorishia, right? I mean, this just sort of this thing hap- This sort of thing happens. Um, so yeah, it's not firm, obviously. Yeah, it's not it's not case closed. That's the point, and I think yeah. that's how most people would have seen it. They've seen it as scientists throw up arms in horror. Like <laughs> I, I I included like for a joke, I included the photograph where I've chucked a lot of dinosaur books in the rubbish bin uh, or a trash can. <laughs> yeah. And- <laughs> 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 Sorry. <laughs> and uh, do you want to do your 70 Sam impression now? <laughs> Yee-haw! <laughs> no king of England's going to come over and Yeah. <laughs> um yeah, so 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 it's, yeah, it's not it's not case closed like we throw all our textbooks away and start from scratch. It's like this is an alternative model does it oh, hypothesis. <laughs> does it um, Okay, I I kind of I think I was a little Oh, Unclear shut up. with shut this. Up. No, no. This is important stuff. You hate it, but it is actually important. Oh, I hate it. So, uh, my objection to it is: so we're just endlessly hypothesizing then. Pretty much. I don't think that that really works. <laughs> no, we're not. No, there's some things that we do regard as pretty much. No, that's probably true. <laughs> yeah. So, what's the difference? Um. Yeah, I, I, well, that's 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 a that's a deep philosophical point, and I and I sometimes wonder about that. <laughs> it's not a deep. It's not a particularly deep philosophical point. It's just a. Yes, it is. No, it is. It's, like, it's what, just a. It's just like a. Well, it's sort of a basic philosophical point, I guess. But it's sort of like, what do we mean when we say words? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so Which, words have meanings, and they have meanings in science too, not just philosophy. So yeah. the word hypothesis sort of been morphing into this whatever it sort of means sort of thing, which is well, so we endlessly hypothesize and just just endlessly hypothesizing isn't science. You have a bunch of hypotheses that come together and allow you to formulate a theory, and your theory, if it's robust enough, should basically then be regarded as something akin to like a law or a rule, which is probably what reality... But how do the hypotheses come together? Like what? What makes them worthwhile as opposed to just complete bollocks? The well, well, I don't know. That's the big problem. How That's what I'm saying. Determine? They're tested. I, they're tested. I, well, well, yeah, they're tested. That that that's what. And but whether something stands up to your particular um, like measure of how robustly it should be tested and how robustly it has withstood testing. Hmm is still somewhat of a, I don't want to say subjective, but it's like, how do you actually decide what's objectively true? We've, it seems to me that everyone's got their own personal code on their own personal take on what is self-evident, what is actually, what am I prepared to accept? Because a lot, I know for a fact that a lot of things that I accept, I'm pretty confident they're for real, like the world is round Mm -hmm. and it goes round the sun and, and, reality is objective and stuff like that it's like how do i actually know that for sure i haven't observed it myself i'm just prepared to accept a bunch of stuff that uh i think is compelling but 
do I actually you know have I actually been into space no <laughs> uh, yeah I I guess what I'm saying is that the traditional definition of the word hypothesis is hypothesis it's below thesis it's an idea that you haven't tested yet you're proposing something to be tested my hypothesis is this this is how we test it you can't say that about um, a cladistic analysis because there's no test you're not proposing any test the cladistic analysis itself is the test when you now, you might not accept that as real. Of course you can't, because obviously science has got is always testing stuff and retesting things. But the traditional way of using hypothesis, as actually in the word, mm -hmm. is a pre-test sort of idea. It might be a scientific idea, but it's, yep. it's proposing something to be tested. There you go. <laughs> so I don't, that's why I don't like the word hypothesis as a place to as because I've seen people and I wish I could come up with examples, but say, well, you know, this is just our hypothesis. Yep. Uh, yeah, it's your model. I think is what you mean. It's not just a hypothesis; it includes its own testing. I think one of the problems with these terms, the terms hypothesis and theory, is that different people actually think they mean different things. And by different people, I don't mean the version – I don't mean the difference between – you know how – you know how literally now literally means figuratively – according to how people actually use it. Oh, don't open, don't <laughs> uh, open that can okay. of worms, Darren, uh, no, Darren, I, Darren, Darren. <laughs> everyone has got this wrong. Everyone has uh, got uh, this wrong but me. I, I, don't, I don't mean the difference between the lay understanding and the technical understanding. I mean that even if you just talk to people who seem to know what they're talking about, to like, you know, scholars of language and, and scientists and stuff, it's like people still have different concepts of what is meant by theory and hypothesis. So you have people who say that – so what I just said about theory a moment ago, theory like the theory of evolution or the theory of gravity is something akin to basically it's a law. It's like we've got tons of hypotheses that support the fact that this is a really robustly supported concept. So far as we can tell, this is, the, this is how the world or the universe works. And it's not impossible that it could be overturned, but it's pretty much impossible. It's pretty close to impossible. On the other hand, you have people saying that, no, a theory can still be something basically that's just like a well-written, well-planned, well well-formulated idea. Yes. And, and, I, I, and, and, and it and doesn't require the stuff that other people say is strictly – I think, I think that that definition of theory as being very well supported and virtually a fact has actually come out of the creation debate, right? Because people are wanting yeah. to, to say, no, 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 no. Uh, theory in science m is strongly supported, right? It's uh, something that isn't – it doesn't mean it's weak. It actually means yeah. it's strong. Yeah, evolution is just, just a theory. But just I think, yeah. Theory. Yeah, and it's, but I think it's pushed a lot of people into saying, well, that's part of the definition of theory, that they're strong, that they're basically yeah. facts. 
And I don't think that goes well with um, either the common usage of the word theory or even makes much sense. I think mm-hmm. I think theory is better used as this is a yeah, somewhat complex and well thought out maybe um idea about the way something works. I think that is actually a better definition of theory. Mm. Because but you'll I- use it like that and he, and lots of scientists will even use that in normal speech, right? Well, I've been, yeah, uh, yeah. My I've theory been... on economics is this, right? They say they're not. They're yeah. not this is not a theory. This is not a theory. <laughs> Immediately, I've had that happen to me loads of times. <laughs> been told to correct the title of a paper or an article. That's not a theory. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. So, um, what's yeah. The other, uh, so yeah, believe, I, I believe. No, you don't believe it, you idiot. Oh my god, that one drives me nuts. Belief is such a simple <laughs> word. You think it's yeah. true. Right, the yep. fact that you've got evidence to support it or not is completely irrelevant to the definition of belief. You can have a true, justified belief, and that's probably knowledge, right? But, um, <laughs> yeah, the fact that something's a belief doesn't suggest that it is totally without support. This stuff drives me nuts, and it all comes out of the creation debate. It's all an overreaction to creationists. I would. Definitely agree that I have mostly heard these discussions within the context of creation, uh, discussions about creationism. So, Father Christmas, Easter Bunny, Jesus Christ, beliefs, beliefs, they're yeah. not. <laughs> so, the argument goes I am very skeptical of your claim that, that we shouldn't be regarding phylogenetic models as hypotheses, though. I, I'm, I'm curious about that. There is a hypothesis. <laughs> no, because also, it's, never f- it's not actually formulated. Whose hypothesis is it? What? The hypothesis it's of the It's a hypothesis of TNT. Yeah. So mm. this is another problem with it, right? That it's actually not even formulated in anyone's brain. I don't know. I, I just, I, I knew, it's a model. Got, it's a model. It's a model support. You got me data. really curious. Well, this is another one of those things, though, where let's say hypothetically that you're right. <laughs> let's say hypothetically. In some in in some crazy alternative parallel upside down topsy turvy world, let's say that you're right. It's one of those things where okay, okay, you're right, but that's not how everyone uses the word. <laughs> so yeah, but so. it's but it is the way everyone people use the word outside of this context. And it is, I would th- I'd say you even just said hypothetically there. Yeah. Right. It's even the yeah I know, but it's but you will say that in normal conversation all the time, as will these other people. They <clears> already <throat> use the word like the way I use it, right? So, <laughs> just saying, it's become a bit jargonized, sure, but I think it's so, it's the wrong jargon. Yeah. It's wrong. Stop stop doing it. This week on the Technical Jargon Podcast, <laughs> <laughs> John and Darren thrash out the term. Lexicon. <laughs> okay, let's move on from this then. Huh? All right, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay. You know, any uh, summing up thoughts on Ornithoscelida? I think yeah. uh, we shouldn't even mention Phytodinosaur or anything like that. But, but yeah, we did. Well, we kind of hinted at it, but yeah. I said I said that people have um, people have. I, I didn't I didn't want to go down the rabbit hole of uh, what do you call them things side. Yeah. Divergent things. Yeah, yeah. Which call them? But that's what people listen for, Darren. Okay, I didn't want to go down that whole 
thing but yes um the I, I said that people have come up with other models over time so there was a time for much of the 20th century where people uh s- several workers were arguing that dinosaurs were not a natural group yeah that that the group of animals we call dinosaurs evolved independently from various different uh Arcosaurian ancestors and then there also was a time during the 80s where a few workers um the kind of radical guys uh backer and paul were, were promoting the view that Ornithischians and sauropodomorphs were close kin, and um, <clears throat> in this clay called Phytodinosauria, which, which was, which was to me part and parcel of like the whole. Uh, what, what, what do we call this phase? This I don't want to call it the dinosaur renaissance or the dinosaur revolution, but this phase when wow, you're first learning about feathery dinosaurs and you're first learning about you know svelte active dinosaurs and wow. Why well, don't you want to call that the dinosaur renaissance? Because when I was learning about it, it wasn't the stuff from the 60s and 70s. It was stuff from the 80s. So it was um, it was the time when a lot of those ideas had been absorbed into the mainstream. And now there was this kind of like left-wing sort of <laughs> fringy contrarian thing promoted by Backer and Paul. Obviously- yeah, okay. Uh, yeah, I think it's still part of the dinosaur renaissance. I think it's late stage dinosaur renaissance yeah. when it started to go a bit senile. <laughs> <laughs> sort of before the dinosaur enlightenment when a lot of harder science started to come in and largely support the dinosaur renaissance, but not some of these crazy late stage dinosaur renaissance stuff. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Um, okay. In ge- sorry. In, in general, summing up, I mean, I, I my my problem with the the hypothesis is that I actually really like it because because I've always thought I've thought I've it's it's predictable that people will say this once a new model is proposed. But I have thought for a while. Hmm. Some of those early ornithischians do look somewhat theropod like, and then there's a couple of weird animals that have been described that like like uh, Demonosaurus, this weird Triassic alleged theropod with crazy heterodont dentition. I remember thinking at the time, that's really weird. That looks a little Ornithischian-like. So I think that I think the concept has some sort of intuitive appeal, which makes me think there maybe is something to it. But it, it won't hurt my feelings either way, you know, because I could equally say the same for, well, <laughs> early Ornithischian, sorry, early Sauropodomorphs do also look somewhat theropod-like. So, yeah, I'm, I'm also equally comfortable with a, the concept of a traditional monophyletic Saurischia. Yep. Yeah, me, I'm the same. Um, and but yeah, I guess what I started with, and I think is worth taking home from this, is stop teaching the Saurischia uh, Ornithischia split. It's just yes. a, it's a dumb thing to teach. Stop it. Yes. <laughs> yeah. It also reinforces this notion that um, key groups, characters. Ki- yeah, or that groups, which is what how virtually everyone thinks, right? That it do- is unfamiliar with this with modern taxonomy that. Um, groups are defined by traits and not that yeah so it's rather complicated to explain to people that yeah we use traits to give a clue to phylogeny but that the actual defining characteristic is the phylogeny the ancestry is your defining feature not the traits Mm. but this is just you talk to people about this and they just this is something they do not understand they think things are defined by traits and it's unhelpful in books about dinosaurs to be talking about the particular traits that define that support clades 
right? Yeah. Because it leads people to thinking that they define clades and they totally don't, and it could turn out those characters are actually completely irrelevant, but there are other ones, right? Yes. So, yeah, I, stop talking about these things. It's in the names as well, and people think names mean things like, oh, my God, Shudasukia, including real crocodiles, and... <laughs> Birds uh, not being yeah. ornithischians. It's just such a mess, right? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Right. Yep, so there is a there's a Tetrapodology article on the whole uh, Ornithoskeleda or Ornitho... How, did you, how do you say it? Ornithoskeleda? Skeleda? Skeleda? I don't I know. I can't help but say Ornithoskeleda. I don't know why I say it that way. But um, but yeah, there's a, there's a Tetzoo article on it, which has been pretty popular. And uh, a whole crap ton of memes have come off the back of this which is quite funny so there you go baronetel 2017 <laughs> modern dinosaur world where just about every yeah. paper has an associated <laughs> meme <laughs> all right let's move on um we uh, we mustn't do the same on this we mustn't talk for like an hour or whatever but um we're going to talk about this at another we only talked for half an hour on that darren that's fine oh, only half an hour yeah. Yeah. okay so we're going to do this Tyrannosaur paper. Yeah. Thomas Carr, Dave Riccio, Jack Seldmeyer, Eric Roberts, Jason Moore. Um, published in Scientific Reports, which is a nature journal. Uh, a new Tyrannosaur with evidence for anagenesis and crocodile-like facial sensory system. So this paper describes the new upper cretaceous Tyrannosaurid from the two medicine formation, Daspletosaurus horneri, named after Jack Horner the best paleontologist in the world and um this is an animal that was actually reported way back in the early 1990s um there's this uh, crucial early paper on two medicine formation dinosaurs where uh, is horner and was it horner and verrucchio they reported like three or four new taxa um it's horner verrucchio and, and mark goodwin 1992 marine transgressions in the evolution of cretaceous dinosaurs and they basically argued that several new dinosaur species evolved um due to the um the the transgression of the bear poor sea i think it was called a marine transgression is where uh basically sea level rises and uh, a, a previously terrestrial area is inundated and they basically argued that the shrinking of the available um habitat he says without having checked the paper at all my recollection is <laughs> i could have this horribly wrong they basically said these animals were sort of forced to evolve in anagenetic fashion in kind of continual straight line one species evolves into another species fashion in a bunch of dinosaurs including two horned dinosaurs a pachycephalosaur a hadrosaur and a tyrannosaur and they got that tyrannosaur in that 1992 paper but it's only now Many years down the line, <laughs> <laughs> and it's actually been published as uh, actually been named as a new species. So the two medicine formation tyrannosaur is officially Daspletosaurus horneri. Horneri, yeah. Jack Horner, and uh, and the big deal about this paper is they're saying that. This is good evidence. We've got good evidence from our phylogenetic information um, that uh, that anagenesis was involved. So now, basically, um, modern evolutionary theory has it that there's two competing models of speciation. Anagenesis, which is one species, keeps changing gradually and it becomes another species. And cladogenesis, 
which is where um, a species um, suddenly splits into subpopulations, which now diverge from the original breeding population and eventually evolve into species. And that obviously splitting event means that you've got at least two and possibly possibly more species that have evolved from the ancestral species. Um, in actual fact, it's somewhat more complicated than that, and there's all kinds of arguments over <laughs> whether, whether we should even use the terms anagenesis and cladogenesis, because in, in a cladogenetic model, you still have anagenesis occurring along the, the lines, yeah. the, along the particular lineages, but let's not worry about that debate. Um, so this paper describes this new animal in some detail, says all that stuff about anagenesis, and that is the crux of the paper. We've got a new animal, this is its anatomy, and it's evidence for anagenesis. Mm -hmm. Anagenesis should not be controversial, but it kind of is because, particularly in dinosaur studies, people have, in recent years, tended to assume that cladogenesis is the only way in which species have occurred, that lineages have diverged and evolved into new species. Not that Diplodocus longus evolved into Diplodocus halorum or whatever, um, that original 1992 paper said that anagenesis was occurring and this seems to confirm it. So, Yeah, and this is a kind of an interesting thing because, okay, like in some ways with these very similar animals, which is probably the only place you can tell it, it might be happening, it's kind of uninteresting in a way, you know, like, yeah, okay, Displetosaurus horneri is the descendant of Displetosaurus taurusus. Is that the yeah. right way around? Yeah, yeah. Terosus yeah. into Hornery. Yeah. So, yeah, okay. So that's a single evolutionary lineage. Mm, yeah, sure. Um, mm. But it does actually become interesting when you start thinking about it over longer terms. So some well-known Jurassic dinosaurs might actually be the direct ancestors of some well-known Cretaceous ones, which would be interesting. Yeah. We, we'll probably never know. It'd be too hard to find this out. But... um. Yeah. There might be, oh god, I, I don't know my sauropod phylogeny well enough to not to make an ass out of myself. Um, Just go for it anyway. This. Okay, so <laughs> let's choose something like Camarasaurus is the direct ancestor of um, a bunch of 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 titanosaurs, for example. Uh, yeah. Yeah, you could probably choose mm -hmm. better actual examples, but this oh, this it. might be so the case. <laughs> and it, uh, uh, cladistic analysis can't actually recover this because it assumes cladogenesis. Um, and you can see in this analysis here, they've got a cladogram in the paper, and of course yeah. they're split. They're not shown on one line, even though that is their hypothesis. Because yeah, um, so you can discover it with cladistic analysis. It's just depends on your sampling so ordinarily in dinosaur studies you assume that your your unit your operational taxonomic unit the thing you identify as a species you tend to people tend to code one specimen or, or, or they include a the the unit is regarded as a population and it's like we're coding this bunch of specimens right but if you actually code you can do a specimen-based analysis, and in those cases, you can find mem individuals or even chunks of individuals, you know, subpopulations within a supposed species. You can find them to be a series of outgroups to mm. another species. But exactly, species. a series of outgroups rather than direct ancestor. A cladogram but, literally can't show something on the line. 
No, no, that's true. But that's all I'm, I'm saying. Think, uh, you can yeah. support your idea, but it can't actually recover it. It can't say this no. is on the line. It 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 will always recover it as an outcome. Well, but if you found, let's say, let's say that we had a hundred specimens of Daspletosaurus taurosus, mm. and uh, and coded all of them, and then we found Daspletosaurus horneri to be nested within that mass of Daspletosaurus taurosus specimens, I think then we'd have a pretty good basis for saying that horneri has indeed evolved from within taurosus. Although you're right that you wouldn't show that on the the diagram wouldn't look like that because that's not what those diagrams look like. Um, you would have established that. You would have shown it emerging from within that cluster. Yes, but you can't, uh, as, I, as I'm saying, the cladistic analysis can't actually recover a direct, <clears throat> a direct ancestor. Okay. Even though that you might actually have a direct ancestor specimen, right? You might yeah. actually be looking at a direct ancestor, um, but you, you won't, yeah. yeah, the analysis itself won't be able to show that. So, so It can hint at it. But yeah, we're kind of yeah yeah okay. So we're kind of having fun with this because here we're talking about the stuff that the that is a big deal in the paper. This is the stuff that actually should. This is the stuff that made it into a uh, scientific reports paper, and it's the stuff that is the meat and potatoes, the guts of the paper. What everything we've just spoken about, but that everything we've just spoken about is not what has actually caught people's interest, <laughs> and it's not what people are talking about. So very few people actually give a very few care about the anagenesis stuff and very few people care about the detailed um, skeletal anatomy of this new species what people are mostly talking about and mostly interested in and we are as well is what the authors say about craniofacial integument so the soft tissues of the dinosaur do you want to take it from here? Um, uh, we're going to do the sensory stuff separately? well I think let's say what they say what they contend it's it's um it's linked to what they say about the sensory stuff and um yeah. well you probably know it better than i do you've been actually studying this stuff right oh, well, mm. <laughs> what what the authors contend and they they state this briefly in the paper. They address it in the supplementary information, and they have, it's been the mo- the thing most discussed in interviews coming off the back of the paper. And it's also um, it's integral to a life restoration that appears in the paper. Is they say that that this animal has new information on two things on a sensory system. So they say they've got evidence for a um, evidence for integumentary sense organs. So sensitive um, structures on the outside of the face that would have given the animal like a really sensitive facial region. Uh, it's very similar to the, there are, there are structures called integumentary sense organs, ISOs in the faces of crocodilians, which give them um, sensory abilities like touch and reception to vibration and stuff, similar to those of like you know primate fingertips. They're saying that the Tyrannosaur has this evidence for that kind of stuff going on in terms of like you know foramina and the detailed anatomy of the bones and whatnot. But then they also say that the external surface of the bone also allows us to work out what the look of the dinosaur was like in life. And of course, regular listeners will know this is something we're particularly interested in. They say that. Well, they don't say this in the paper, but what Tom Carr has said in interviews and stuff is no to the extra oral soft tissues like lips and any ideas about like soft flappy bits around the edges of the jaws and the back of the corner of the mouth and stuff. They say that the 
um, the whole facial region was covered in cornified, so very like thick keratinized um, epidermis with big, what they say, they say flat scales like those are crocodilians. They say, we'll come back to that in a minute. And they say that those cover the whole of the face and come all the way to the edges of the teeth. So in other words, they're talking about a crocodile-like air quotes scaly face with there not being the soft tissues that john has reconstructed quite extensively on dinosaurs which i've argued for in in dinosaurs in various articles and stuff and uh, so it's a view of the tyrannosaur face which is um promoted by some researchers there are some people who've, who've supported this stuff in recent years but is like possibly true to say this is a minority opinion increasingly people have gone the way of saying that dinosaurs probably did have lips <laughs> we covered that before last time <laughs> that whole debate about whether you should what you should call these structures they're saying <coughs> no yeah to that kind of stuff yeah that's so that's what they're saying that's what and they're saying got, that's what they're saying and they've got a life reconstruction produced by dino or dino Pulera, Pulera. I, I don't know how you say that name. I don't know that artist, but um, quite a nice picture. But um, it shows a. I'm reminded of um, General Grievous in uh, the Attack of the uh, No uh, Revenge of the Sith because it's got this like distinct. Who else is it wears a sort of bones? There's a character with a bone skull in some fictional thing. What, what would that? Be? The, yeah. Who is it? Someone's got like a, a he man. Oh, I know. Skeletor. Skeletor. Well, Skeletor's face is a skull. It's not the same. No, in the David Tennant Doctor Who series, oh, yeah? there was a a race of <coughs> aliens who uh, was, I can't remember what they called. It was like the first David. Uh, <laughs> what were they called? Cool sorry, bro. Let's called. move Shut on. Up. <laughs> They've given the Tyrannosaur this like like mask that sort of sits on top of the rest of its integument and there's a there's like a distinct bare area that corresponds to the orbit the bony eye socket there's a distinct bare area that sort of corresponds to the 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 nostril opening the naris and this this area of like these alleged big flat scales stops distinctly at a distinct line and then behind that you've got a um a covering of of smaller scales yeah. which are inferred on the basis of um, a few fragments known from other tyrannosaurs i'm just yeah i i gotta i actually know dino and okay i think that this picture has been somewhat misused and misrepresented because i think it's meant to be diagrammatic right this is the areas that we have these things in so if you look at the scales on the back um they're actually really really regular it's almost like well this is a pattern right um, so I think the, the picture is not meant to be literally how it looks in life. I think it's meant to be more like this is, this is a diagram of what different, um, skin textures we had in what places. Hence the really sharp defining, um, lines between the, between the different, uh, types of integument. So mm -hmm. I should think that's the way Dino, Dino drew it. Um, unfortunately, they went and coloured it in, which he probably mm. did as well, but then it's presented it as the life restoration, and I, I think that's a mistake, because I think 
the clear intention to my illustrator's eye of what this picture is is it's a, it's it's diagrammatic it's not a it's not meant to be a, like this is literally what it looks like in life anyway go ahead uh, the aliens were called the Cigarax. Okay. Cigarax. Okay. And it was yeah. from uh, an episode called The Christmas Invasion. Um, yeah, so so that's what so that's what they seem to be saying. Now they are the, the there isn't too much elaboration on any of this in the paper. So this people saw this paper come out and immediately, you know, rushed to read the text and the supplementary info what does it actually say about lips and facial tissue they don't really address much of this stuff they all they basically say is that that this tyrannosaur and other tyrannosaurs as well have got like a hummocky facial uh, sorry a hummocky bony texture which is really similar to that of crocodilians and therefore indicates the presence of large flat scales so you go and look at the bone texture of tyrannosaurids and compare it to crocodilians are they really similar enough for you to think that they do actually have the same epidermal structures? Um, having looked at this, no, I'm not convinced. I don't think that this is strong evidence that Tyrannosaurus had a crocodilian-like texture. I think they look quite different. Um, and I should say that myself and a bunch of other authors in a project led by uh, Chris Barker, a colleague of mine, we uh, CT scanned the uh, facial bones of the large theropod Neoveneta. We've got a paper which has been – it's had a hell of a time in review for the, the, the normal reasons when you tr- – the Brief aside, when you try and publish a paper in one of the top-tier journals, so when you go to like Nature and Science and those kind of journals, you get – messed around endlessly not because people point to chronicle flaws in what you've done because editors say we're not sure this paper is for us um they might send it out for review and then people say well this paper's okay but oh is it really that novel and and before you know it, you've lost six months just from hopping from journal to journal we've had that with this paper it's been in review for months and months it is currently in press for for a journal and um we've found what we think is compelling support for uh, i think i'm allowed to talk about this because it's been presented at a few conferences already um we found evidence for uh, basically what we think is really enhanced tactile sense in the maxillary bones the premaxilla and the dentary of neoveneta we said in the paper that it's most likely well there's a bunch of things it could be due to we said that it could be to do with with social and sexual behavior with them doing lots of like face-to-face rubbing and contact and stuff which is we base that mostly on work that's been done on crocodilians and uh, we also said that it could be integral to uh, like their feeding style that they could they could use the contact between the face and whatever it is they're eating to like delicately deflesh certain parts of carcasses that sort of thing mm-hmm. and basically we say almost word for word what's said in this current paper we also talk about the external surface texture of the bones in neoveneta and what it means for um the integument the stuff on the outside and uh, we think and we're dealing with a with a bone surface texture that is not especially different from tyrannosaurids we think that there's evidence for extensive um extra oral tissue we certainly did not say anything about there being again air quotes here flat scales um in fact the i think a flaw of this new paper by car et al is they keep on saying that the hummocky texture is indicative of flat scales in crocodilians but crocodilians don't have flat scales covering 
the face. It's been established in recent years in some really interesting papers by, I want to say Michelle Milinkovic, but um, I'm pretty sure that's incorrect. Um, um, they, um, th- 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 it's basically been shown that the facial tissue of living crocodilians, crocodilians with a Y, so gharials, alligators, and crocodiles, um, is a like large keratinous covering that then cracks differentially in different groups according to the underlying bony structure. The cracking in alligators is far less extensive than it is in crocodiles. Crocodiles have this series of large polygonal cracks creating the look of a scaly face. They're not scales at all. Alligators don't. Alligators have large continuous smooth areas. Um, and the fact that this cracking happens according to skull shape means that every individual's got a different pattern. These cracks are as individual as, say, human fingerprints are. So this study, they only seem to have looked at alligators. So not only do they, with all due respect to the authors, not only do they seem to be wrong about crocodilians having, air quotes, large flat scales, but they're also looking at a crocodilian that doesn't have, air quotes, large flat scales anyway. Alligators don't really have that. So... I don't think that what they say in the paper really I don't I don't see that what they what they seem to be saying really matches the data that they have nor do I think it's um uh it's it's not congruent with what another team have concluded about um external integument uh, facial tissues in in uh, other big theropods and i so wish i our, our neovenator paper is probably a couple of months away from being published even though we've christ gone over it so many bloody times but um yeah i, I i've my inter- we we talk in the paper about how there's there's extensive extra oral tissue there's extensive stuff on the outside of the face we say why it's likely not ramphothica it's likely it's likely not horn but um there's yeah there's, there's no reason to think that it's a, a thing similar to what crocodilians have yeah so again what's kind of interesting about this paper is that the actual meat and potatoes of the paper as you say aren't the things that got it famous in the press and the lip stuff hit the um hit really big didn't it <laughs> that was what people were talking about straight away and i had skimmed over the paper and assumed it was in there because i saw mm. you know i read a bit of the soft tissue stuff and i'd read an interview with tom carr and then someone said no wait a second it's not in there and it is it in the supplementary material then i go through and actually look for lips or anything like this and it's not there it's just not there at all which is kind of fascinating um i wonder if it was in the draft and it's been cut or, you know, um, but I don't yeah. think so. You would have thought they would have put that in the, um, yeah, in the supplementary info, and it's and it's there's this one brief uh, paragraph. Yeah, so we're still not having the argument that needs to be had about, um, you know, the what these osteological correlates to soft tissue are because. There's not enough information in this paper to um, talk about that sort of thing. And as I say, they don't even mention lips at all, right? So Mm, mm. um, it continues to be argued about people online and still in the technical literature, the arguments feel... So it's another case similar similar to the the Baron. Yeah, sorry, go ahead. Well, 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 just people, most people... 
and by people I mean you know non-specialists will have seen this paper and taken away from it oh that they now they know now they know that dinosaurs didn't have lips I always thought it was a stupid idea um, I'm glad they that they've turned out to have crocodile faces and exposed teeth it's like no that's what this paper sort of seems to propose but it's ordinarily I would say hypothesis at this point but um uh, it's is it, is it a hypothesis John is it a hypothesis He's drinking. It is a. It was a hypothesis. Yeah, they've proposed some evidence to test it. We're not convinced by the evidence. Yeah. Uh, and actually, the lips thing isn't even a hypothesis in this paper. They don't even mention it. So, you know, I don't no. see any reason why you couldn't have large flat scales, um, grading into lips, right? Well, large flat scales in quotation marks, like you say. Because yeah. it grades into other tissue all over it. You know, crocodiles have this on their face, not large flat scales, as you point out. But, you know, you can change tissue types. And they don't explicitly um, argue this stuff in the paper. Although we do, I do know that Thomas Carr's argument is that this texture that he equates to large flat scales continues all the way down to the margin of the maxilla. Um, so... The argument is that the texture doesn't change, and therefore it's the same tissue all the way down to the edge of the teeth. But that's not said in the paper. There's not enough, like, even in the supplementary material, the photos and stuff, they're not, you can't really tell, right? There's not, like, a whole bunch of really high-resolution photos with the texture figured or anything like that. That's It's not closely argued. Mm. Which is the kind of thing we we need, Right. Mm. I feel mm. like all this is in the still a very hand wavy stage that we need more well what textures are we talking about and how do you define those textures because one person looks at it and says yeah that's just like a crocodile and another person looks at it and says it looks nothing like a crocodile and mm. then we just stuck shouting at each other I guess yeah yeah <laughs> and uh, <laughs> that's no no way to do science <laughs> um yeah, because, you know, having looked at this more closely since it's come out and the arguments about it, um, there, there's more variability in crocodiles and tyrannosaurs than maybe I had thought previously, right? You can see bits of crocodile um, skulls that do look like tyrannosaur skulls, this sort of slightly hummocky sort of to use their term, um, texture to it. Um, but we don't really know why that equates to surface tissue or whether it necessarily does at all, right? No. Uh, it's th- just a the coincidence in crocodiles. Yeah. You, you, you can find animals all over the place that, that have a, a, a skull bone texture that is equated by paleontologists with a particular look but in the live animals nah, yeah. it's like you know there are mammals that have got hummocky like like in quotes reptile like dinosaur like skull texture and they don't have <laughs> they don't have like a reptilian face they're furry little bastards so um yeah uh, yeah don't get started on fish but um yeah um mm, yeah i I, th- I think this I mean, maybe this is a particularly conservative take on things. Uh, if you look at that that reconstruction again, I mean, you look at how little keratin has been applied 
to like the the nasal ridge and the bosses around the eyes and stuff um as well, I, we we've probably discussed before and i know i've certainly I, I covered it in that talk i gave at the new scientist meeting it's um you know you look at living animals bony bosses and lumps and things can be can be like the the actual structure in the live animal can be like you know 10 times bigger than the underlying bony core mm. um you, you've got loads of scope there for uh you know unfortunately stuff that we can't really commit to as real in dinosaurs but in non-bird dinosaurs but certainly stuff that's conceivable based on what we see in living animals so yeah and i mean it seems possible or even likely to me that one day we'll discover something right Um, yeah a tyrannosaur with a face impression or something it seems seems perfectly possible to me Um, yeah and that we'll have some better clue about what's going on Mm. yeah um yeah, so I guess, yeah, kind of frustrating in that what everyone took away from the paper, the paper is actually kind of weak on. And mm-hmm. um, it's, it still all feels very hand-wavy. And it is the thing the paper, the paper is least concerned with, yeah. It's, the, it's not the raison d'etre of the paper at all. Yeah. It's just a little aside. So how ironic. <laughs> That's the thing everyone's really interested in. <laughs> Anagenesis, yeah, fine, whatever. Yeah, whatever. Uh, a new species of Tyrannosaur, yeah, fine, whatever. Like, we've known about this one since 1992. Good to have yeah. a finally name. But, um, yeah, the other stuff. And one, should we say one last thing on it is um, Tom Carr and some of his colleagues are quite lumpy when it comes to... Um, when when we talk about lumping and splitting in, in taxonomy, I'm sure many of you know already, that means, you know, how many uh, species you're prepared to... Ex- uh, whether you chuck things together or whether you regard them as distinct. Okay. And uh, and they lump a bunch of things here. So in their family tree, they, they only have two... Sp- well, they don't recognize the other species of Allioramus, Allioramus remotus, and they sink... Oh, I've forgotten it already. Cayenne... Ch- Cayenne... This this Allioramine tyrannosaurid that has got such a memorable name that even his describers took to calling it Pinocchiosaurus Rex. Bothered, guys. I speak of Steve Brasati and his efforts to discuss it with the media, but um, whatever that Cyanotchisaurus or something, um, that's uh, Allioramus sinensis here. Um, Tarbosaurus is not recognised by Tom Carr, so he has Tyrannosaurus batar. Interestingly, however, they do retain Zhucheng Tyrannus magnus as a distinct taxon, which is funny because uh, many theropod workers regard that as just basically a Tarbosaurus, and uh, and and yet here it is as a distinct uh, taxon. It's not 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 based on great great material, a few skull bones and stuff, but um. And yeah. how come why no Albertosaurines in the tree? I find that weird. Why didn't they do that? Yeah, that is maybe. A... Yeah, because surely they should be like the sister taxon to. You got this Tyrannosaurus plus Dasplitosaurus clade, which presumably is Tyrannosaurini. There should be. They should have an Albertosaurine in there somewhere, or maybe they've just all been sunk in. <laughs> of course not. Of course not. I know Tom Carr still at least does support uh, Albertosaurus, although I, th- I don't think he recognises the distinction of Gorgosaurus from Albertosaurus. But. Well, a lot of that's just gen- generic. <laughs> generic? Generic meter. What am I gen- saying? Gen- gen- say it again. Genericometer. Genericometer. There we go. I was just getting Patented the emphasis Holt- wrong. Yeah, Patented Holtz-calibrated genericometer. Because that's what um, a lot of this is, right? It's like, well, Tyrannus... 
like Tarbosaurus is Tyrann like that relationship Tyrannosaurus and um, Tarbosaurus. It's not unusual that you see them as sister taxon, right? It's just whether you choose to, to extend Tyrannosaurus out to Tarbosaurus or not. <coughs> yeah. All right. So there we go. That's the end of that chapter. Um... Okay. News from the world of Darren and not John. <laughs> um... Did I mention the Oxford Literary Festival? No. Nope. Did I mention Hunt? Okay. Well, I gave a talk on cryptozoology. And specifically on my book, Hunting Monsters, which comes out this month, April, in hard copy. And I've seen hard copy versions. I actually had them at the at a book signing I went to. And uh, wow, it, it looks really good. And um, I'm going to be doing a couple of books off the back of Hunting Monsters. And did I mention I got a TV show off the back, coming off the back of it as well? I think I did. <laughs> so we should say, oh, and Dinosaurs in the Wild uh, is going into its final stage of development i've been looking at all the uh, the latest developments in the cg and the robots and everything uh dinosaurs in the wild i must have mentioned it already it's like a visitor interactive um event thing where you basically go to an exhibit which is going to be traveling around the uk starting in birmingham opening in june you can buy tickets for it now if you google dinosaurs in the wild birmingham and um, you will basically go back in time and see the world of the dinosaurs <laughs> as if scientists are – okay, no, let me start again. So people have actually invented time travel. A company called Chronotex has actually set up a research base in the, uh, the what's now Hell Creek in wherever that is, South Dakota. Um, is it Montana, Hell Creek? Oh, I think dear. it's Montana, yeah. Yeah, one of the Montanas. Uh, no, one, one of the, the Montanas. <laughs> I'm getting confused with the South and North Dakotas. Um, and um, yeah, w uh, scientists have collected loads of samples. They're doing like you know pathologies and collecting tissue and all this stuff. And uh, you'll see laboratories, and uh, you will look through windows and see interact. You actually you'll see animals of the time interacting with their landscape, and. Um, Okay, as I've already said many times, I'm not, I haven't done this solely. I'm like the advisor, so I've done my damnedest to get things looking good and looking right. But obviously, you know, things don't always go 100% to plan. But I am mostly happy with it. So um, it's uh, yeah, we've got like feathers up the wazoo and creatures mostly looking and behave, behaving actually, yeah. <laughs> behaving, <laughs> behaving goodly. Drink, drink, drink. <laughs> Uh, got pterosaurs in there and stuff. So, um, Dinosaurs in the Wild opens June. Check it out. And um, I've been c f taking a million photographs of everything at every stage, uh, but um, I haven't yet. Like, I want to start, you know, getting out on social media, but it's taken a while with it with the publicity people. Right. We should mention TetsuCon, which happens on Saturday, October the twenty-first this year, twenty seventeen at the venue which is at mallet street in central london and we have a big space where we can seat as around about 170 180 people isn't it yep and we're gonna have so the normal stuff we have for tezuka we're gonna have a paleo art event this year involving probably john mark <laughs> Witten, <laughs> bob nichols Maybe Lewis Ray. I think Lewis Ray is going to come along this year. Yeah. Uh, normally he's been uh, overseas when Tetsuocon is on. And um, um, confirmed talks. We have um, 
I talk on thylacines. I talk on mesozoic marine reptiles. I talk on fossil birds. I talk on the history of zoos and a couple of others yet to be fully confirmed, but mostly confirmed. And uh, we hope to see you there. If you're in the UK, come along. You've got no excuse whatsoever. It's only 50 quid for the day, which, come on. Yep. What's 50 pounds between? As we've established before, <laughs> we can't do it for any cheaper. We try, we try. <laughs> Well, you know, the best thing to make it cheaper is get more people to come. Exactly. Right. Exactly. Yep. So, so this is this is the big one. Bring this your friends. It. Bring your friends. Yeah. Yep. Even if they're not interested at all, drag them. Drag them along. They'll learn something. Learn yeah. this, you. <laughs> yeah. Um, and okay, so there you go. I also wanted to just briefly mention it's covered on Tet Zoo. I've had obviously the Ornithoskeleda stuff. I did a hilarious April Fool's joke about the mass survival of multitudinous dinosaur lineages across the KPG boundary. Nothing at all. I'm serious. That that article was nothing at all to do with the Baronetel Ornithoskeleda paper. It instead riffs off various other things, which I'll tell people about if you come and talk to me about in private does that make sense yeah. and i've also recently covered the ozin cadnock tiger photo the rilla martin photo of 1964 which i've written about on tenzuk tetsu a couple of times i've written about in hunting monsters but there was a recent revelation someone supposedly confessing to it as a hoax um i like that story so i covered yeah. that also okay so now for yeah the final part of the show which we like to call popular tat now there's a bunch of new uh, superhero movie trailer. <laughs> I kid, I kid. I'm sure there totally are. Yeah, there's like Spider-Man Homecoming. You've seen oh, that, John? <laughs> <laughs> this will end soon, won't it? This will no. end soon. They're only just starting. They're only just starting I know, phase but three. People are getting sick of it, aren't they? No, Look, they're making more than ever. I don't want to denigrate people that like superheroes. <laughs> right that's fine that's your thing it's the fact that just about every big budget film that comes out is a superhero film and i'm not keen on superheroes especially i didn't know that i hated them so much until they started becoming like totally unavoidable power rangers power rangers are they superheroes uh, yeah and like <laughs> horrible nostalgia 90s nostalgia <laughs> yeah uh, kong skull island i think we, you haven't seen that yet have you so no um, uh, oh God, prequels and jeez. Oh, yeah. Did we talk about the um, post-credit scene after Kong Skull Island? Maybe oh. we'll do that after you've seen yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you got to sit there. To do the I end, really John. have to see it? I don't want to see it. I don't want to see it. It's the best film ever. You got to see it. It's not. It's not the best film ever, is it? It's terrible, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> of course it is. <laughs> <laughs> At least it's, it's not, not a superhero film, but it is a prequel, and it feels oh. like sort of like we just. We've done Kong in this sort of way. Kong's, Kong's kind of a superhero. He's he's able to fly. <laughs> he's able to jump. He's able to true. jump pretty far. Yeah, that's true. You think a gorilla that big would be much more staid in its movements? Yeah. There you go. Okay, enough of that. What are we Wait, talking Rick about and, for real? Rick and Morty season three. We're not talking Rick about Rick and Morty because I haven't seen it. So, love what Rick. are we really talking about? We're talking about a movie called Arrival, which I saw last year, and now I have no recollection of whatsoever, apart from the fact that Amy Adams was the main character. Yep. But you've seen it more recently, so you have lots to say. I have. Let's start with you. Okay. Well, I'm not in the film. No. But, okay, it's based on... But you do have your own television show. 
True. Um, Arrival is uh, it's based on a short story, and it's about uh, giant craft that appear in numerous places all over the world, and it's basically propaganda for people who don't have children. It's like, okay, I want to imagine that that I've, I'm grabbing you by the ears or the hair. I'm saying, you should have children. It's the best thing ever. Uh-huh. And that's the end of the film. <laughs> Did you like the film? Um, I enjoyed it. Okay. Because here's the, like yeah, exactly. Okay. So I yeah, liked, I like the heptapods. Yeah. Okay. So this is an interesting film. I feel like it's a bit like Interstellar. Um, parallels to Interstellar in many ways. Um, in that it has some really good stuff in there. Mm-hmm. And let me get this out of the way to start with. The basic plot and the sci-fi stuff is fine. And actually, I think it probably was quite a good short story. But I think it's an absolute disaster as a film. An absolute disaster? I did not enjoy it. I sat through the whole thing squirming. And, <laughs> and I realized because so many people think this is such a good film... I'm going to have to try and do a better job than usual of saying why I didn't like it. Okay. I'm interested. I'm not saying I will. I'm going to try. (laughs) All right. First of all, okay, so having got out of the way that the plot, you know, the the, the basic bones, the short story sort of plot is okay, I'm going to sort of not criticize that because I think it's actually better than lots of sci-fi films and, you know, fine. But given that, what they did on top of it, every choice they made was annoying. Mm -hmm. So the style of the film I found incredibly irritating in terms of just the visual look of it. The writing, like the script, the actual dialogue, I found abysmal. And the acting and tone was... Um, to my mind, utterly pretentious and very, very difficult to bear. <laughs> mm-hmm. So let me let me go to the visual thing. They did the yeah. whole thing with Let's a, unpack this <laughs> with a blue filter on the camera. Now this is the aesthetic, aesthetic <clears throat> um, sophistication of putting a sepia tone on everything in the thirties, right? It's yeah. like, yeah, we want you to be a bit like depressed, so we sort of made it all blue and grey. <laughs> Like, seriously? Are you professional filmmakers or are you, like, um, some kid who's got just got hold of Final Cut Pro? I mean, seriously, this is, this is not impressive stuff. Uh. People think that it's beautifully shot. It's just kind of really stayed. Like, okay, the camera moves slightly at lots of shots. Ooh, wow. Yeah, you see that in ads and stuff. I mean, I just think that visually... It was dreary and lacked any any flair or anything to get it interest get it make well, it interesting. I don't remember any of that. Right. The only thing I remember which which I did like were these shots where where um you saw an aerial tracking shot of us going towards the craft yep. and it was in places I think there was one in Devon in England where you had rolling mist coming over a hill. Yeah, but that I was, don't that remember. was the one in Montana, I think. Okay, yes. yeah. So I don't remember any of that stuff. Yeah, it did have. I, a, I don't see blue. So yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I thought the film looked great. <laughs> yeah. Well, 
<laughs> okay, yeah, no, I, I, yeah, I'll qualify that a little bit. There were some, there were some shots in it which looked yep. good, but it was the total lack of variation in the way <clears> the shots were done. It had no, the basic feeling was grey, staid, and kind of depressing. Deliberately, because what they were trying to do was be sort of dreary. And yeah. I felt like that was a monotonal film to make me sit through whatever it is, two and a half hours of it, I found insulting, frankly. If this was a short film, okay, maybe. But you need more variation in it than that. Just artistically, I hated that. Okay. And way, way, way worse than Interstellar. Interstellar had so much variation. And um, Interstellar's feeling of like the different places was actually quite good like they actually got the atmosphere of this dusty world that was kind of falling apart they did it yeah. quite well and they contrasted it with the space stuff and i think all that stuff in interstellar was actually done really well which was done very poorly in this film despite having a, the occasional spectacular visual mm-hmm. um I, I i should say that a good thing i like the i like the alien design i thought that was pretty cool mm-hmm. right i like the what are they called? Hectopods? Hep, hep, Hepto- heptopods. Heptopods. I Abba, were... Abbott and Costello. Yeah. I thought they were pretty good. I, I liked them. So yeah. what was next on my list? Um, so I didn't, I didn't like the, the stupid colour of the film said, and the you cinematography. Said you said the actual, the writing. The, the, writer, the, the writing. Dialogue. Is, the writing and dialogue is abysmal. And I just, like, I've got the actual script here. And it's just... It's incredibly pretentious, and it's like, mm-hmm. ooh, look at the little things we did here. So, you know, it's much more obvious when you read the stri- script how bad it is, but it, it made me cringe when I was watching it. So there's this sort of, there's this bit when she's with her kid, and her kid says, I love you. Like, yeah, that's a, that's a realistic kid, right? Yeah, yeah, I love you. Kids never say that. They don't. Stupid kids. And then, okay, and then the next line is 12-year-old Hannah glowers at us. Hannah, I hate you. Like, I love you. I hate you. Like, oh, for God's sake, really? Ouch. And it is full of stuff like this. And it's just cringeworthily bad. And I don't understand how anyone can think that this is a well-written film. I think what people think is because it deals with... Spoilers, obviously spoilers. We all know this, right? Um, It deals with a kid dying. But it's like weighty drama you don't get weighty drama just by chucking in weighty subjects you get weighty drama by actually being writing good drama and this had no good drama it had a weighty subject which it mangled in this Mm. Mm. hacked up horrible way and there's like some of the and a lot of the characters are obviously stupid tropes the colonel who comes in to her office to get her to do translation and then acts like she can just translate just from noises. Like, yeah. oh, yeah, yeah, they've got their top men on this, huh? I mean, yeah. seriously, this is the guy in charge. He is going to know a lot more than this. This is unbelievably stupid and irritating. It makes me cringe. And to <clears> me, <throat> in, okay, if this was in some sort of stupid thing, like that dinosaur thing with the raptors we watched, you know, where they all came out of a hole, <laughs> yeah. right fine whatever even if it's an independence day type thing fine whatever but this is billing itself as being so much more intelligent than that that i just find that the dis- disconnect between 
what this film is p- portraying itself as, what it's meant to be, and the actual mm-hmm. quality of the writing are just so far apart that it's it makes it worse than if they had just stuck with the writing and made the sort of film the writing suggests it is. Um, of the things I okay, uh, interesting. Of the of the things that I thought about, um, I find the idea that you can so Louise Banks, Amy Adams's character. I should say that I think that uh, of the people of the people I know that don't like the film, apart from you, it's because they don't like Amy Adams. They don't like her mannerisms, what she does with her face and the way she talks. I, I've spoken to a few people that dislike the film for that reason. Um, I don't I don't dislike her that much. Uh, I don't think she makes a very good Lewis Lane. But um, anyway, um, she um, is meant... To, yeah, the idea that you can go to a linguist and say, what does this mean? <laughs> and then they go, ah, I recognise these, you know, this and this and this and this. It's like... like I'm pretty sure that a linguist, as in someone who's meant to study human languages, is going to say, I literally don't even know where to start. You're talking to the wrong person. Go and talk to an animal behaviorist or someone who studies rhinos or crocodiles or something, right? Whereas they then go on this, the whole storyline in the film is is that the aliens use a language uh, with these incredibly complex swirls of the, the blobs of inky stuff they made, clearly inspired by cephalopods. Um, that to me was just like, yeah, I just don't, I don't think anyone would even start going down the route of, of, um, being able to analyze. They were, they were just, they discovered that there were landmarks in the communications and basically they were incredibly complicated and, you know, that they meant something very specific. Um, yeah, that, that, that whole angle, that's the sort of thing that like, you know, TV arty people tend to come up with without thinking that what would what would actually happen in science. I think in, in you'd have to devise some other some other means of communication. I mean, there would be some other means of communication, given that they know that the the uh, heptapods did respond to some signals sent by people because they could see they could see like if we write on a whiteboard, they could understand and respond to it in some way. You would you would train them in the same way. Not train that's the wrong term for an intelligent animal, but you would you would teach. Yeah, 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 yeah. You would have you would have some system the same as you do when you train a dog. Where you make a click and it responds in this way. You would have something like that. You wouldn't immediately be able to decipher some super complex, nuanced language, which is actually what happened in the film. I thought all of that was. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I mean, I'm going to give that more of a pass because that was the whole point of the film. You kind of have to accept that conceit for the film to work, right? That's the whole plot. Yeah. So. They them translating the weird language that actually allows you to think about time in a non-linear way and um, see into the future. Essentially, remember the future is what the language allows you to do. Right, oh, that's the plot. Ah, oh, you didn't actually get the plot. Well, I, I saw it like five okay, you months forgot, ago. Forgot, I don't remember any of it. You've forgotten the plot. Okay, so didn't it come out in Chris- Christmas or something? Yeah. It's literally months since I've seen it. When did it come out? I'm curious now. I forgot. I remember that it's a non-linear story, and it's got the beginning at the end, or the end at the beginning, or something. And it's well, no, does that, that make sense? The beginning at the yeah. for God's yeah. sake, I'm taking another drink. Yeah. Um, but okay. And I know that it's about the death of a daughter. Okay. So the plot is essentially, if we take the non-linear storytelling out of it, 
which was just a trick. The plot is that she goes and learns this language. Yeah. Which she already had sort of the inbuilt uh, propensity to it. Mm-hmm. But the language basically is non-linear. Like it doesn't have a beginning and an end of sentences and things like this. Right. Yeah. And it allows you to remember the future. So you can remember things that happen to you in the future. Your whole life is sort of becomes like a memory to you, right? So you don't have a beginning and an end. You just have this bunch of information that you... um, And hence the, you know, the communications being circles and the non-linear storytelling of it was just a trick to make all that difficult to work out, right? Okay, I saw this film on the 19th of November. Yeah. And it's now the 6th of April. Yeah. That's... (laughs) That's more than four (laughs) months ago. (laughs) You can't remember what happened last week, let alone four months ago. You have a good memory for films, though, so... Yeah, yeah. I, <laughs> but I don't think you actually do. It's just that you watch them thousands and thousands and thousands of times. That's uh, my secret. Yeah. Um. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, that's the basic plot, right? That the the, the le- and the central sci-fi element of it. They have to translate the language because that's what they're calling the weapon or whatever or the tool. Is it? Yeah. Oh. It's I the thought... language. It's the ability to see the future. Mm. Or, as I think the filmmakers or the short story would writer would have it, to see time as non-linear. Right, it's like another dimension. Like you might see something <clears throat> over there and see something over there. You don't have to see it as a, yeah, yeah. So that's the essential plot to it. The fact that they did it, they told the story in a non-linear way. It's stylistically referring to it, which is another kind of little irritating, pretentious conceit. But I suppose it would be too obvious if they just did the story linear in a linear fashion. What happened to her? Mm-hmm. But you know they're hinting that at the beginning of the film that her daughter has already died. But of course, that's something that's going to happen to her after the events of like the aliens coming. Right. Yep. So that's the sort of the sixth sense, sixth sense stuff. Like, oh, all this stuff that they've been doing, like a memory, that's in the future, man. Ah, uh, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah? You remember this? And yeah. she's she marries a physicist who she'd never met. When yeah, so it's coming together now vaguely. Yeah, yes. So the film's all very sort of clever like that, but I feel like a lot of that cleverness was just <clears throat> faux clever. Uh, yeah, sort of art schooly, <laughs> sort of clever. You know, project sort of clever rather than actually <laughs> being a good film. Good film. Yeah. I just uh, yeah. I felt like it wasn't a good film to watch. It it bored me a lot of the time. I found it irritating a lot of the time. Of course, the dialogue really didn't help and the cinematography didn't help with these elements, so it was boring to watch, painful to listen to. Um yeah, touching on the uh, Amy Amy Adams thing, right? Why the people don't like her. Part of it I think is the direction and um there's lots and lots and lots of her sort of really close up and her breathing in her spacesuit, like, <laughs> which is a thing they do with female actresses, which is 
It's a little trope, and it's a little, yeah, yeah, sorry, yeah, female (laughs) actors, I should have said, which is a thing that, um, yeah, obviously, yeah, it's a little sort of sexist trope that they use in films, which was annoying to see in this. On the sexism angle, how many women were in this film apart from her? There was one other she spoke to. (laughs) (laughs) It's 2017, man. This is like, this was seriously a sexist film, and... That's a bit embarrassing. And for it to be held up as a really good film, not just mm. some cheap sci-fi crap, well, yeah. that's really disappointing. Well, how does it score on things like Rotten Tomatoes and stuff? I haven't checked. I think it's really high. I mean, yeah. people love this thing, and I <clears throat> really, really, really disagree. Let's have a look at <laughs> I Oh, think my God, 94%. 94%. This is why wow. I hate Rotten Tomatoes, because they are... Absolute suckers for this kind of pretentious rubbish. Gosh. They see this sort of trickery. You know, basically, I think this film is a trick. It's like, oh, look, we've got all these circles. Like, time is a circle and the language is a circle. Everything's a circle, man. <laughs> and, and, and all your critics are out there going, mm, oh, yeah, deep. And just, no, no, <laughs> no. And the acting. <laughs> it's very, very difficult to separate acting from directing. And so I'm not, I don't want to dump on actors too much, but I felt like this was bad. And acting, and what, what can you do with bad lines and bad direction? I don't know. What can you do? But I didn't like the acting at all. None of the characters felt like they came alive to me. I didn't like any of them. Especially, Amy Adams was really like, like why do I care about her? She's yeah. got no personality. Right, she had no personality as far as I could make out, except maybe a bit blue. Like seriously, no. Now, how many jokes were in this film? Now I know that it's not a comedy, but people tell jokes, people say funny things, people laugh, especially when they're stressed, and. I'm sure I know you're joke. not meant to criticise, like, maybe this film isn't going for real realism, right? Like, okay, mm-hmm. it's not really how they talk. But it just, it adds to this atmosphere they're doing with the blue filters and the grey shots of like, well, no one is really going to smile or crack jokes because that's not the sort of film we're making. We're making something sort of serious and blue and dark and grey. And yeah, well, congratulations, Mr. 14-year-old filmmaker. That's a really interesting idea. <clears throat> no, that's just unbearably dumb. So, I hated this film. <laughs> I hated it, especially because I felt insulted by it the whole way through. It felt like a personal insult to me. <clears throat> Everything I notice in films was bad in this. Okay. And <clears throat> there you go. I don't think it's the worst film I've ever seen, mm-hmm. but it was one of the ones that made me most cross. It made me angry. Bad films generally don't make me angry. They just make me go, what the, what the hell? This, made, this one made me angry. It felt insulting. It felt insulting to my intelligence, to my aesthetics, everything. I hated it. Okay. Um. Arrival, directed by Dennis Villeneuve, will be showing in cinemas from uh, <laughs> September the 1st until 
December the 15th at All Good IMAX Cinemas. And, <laughs> well, and next week on John's Film Reviews, John will be reviewing, uh, I don't know, uh, X-Men... <laughs> Logan. <laughs> oh man! Oh, I look, look. I would much rather see some silly superhero film than this. If you told me I could watch like some X Men prequel ten times, or watch this again, I'd watch the X Men prequel ten times easily. Well, I did enjoy your review. It was very good. And it's, if I if I had um, if we'd spoken about this within a week of me seeing the film, or, or maybe even a month of seeing me seeing the see the film, I yeah, uh, some of those things didn't. Um, I, I do remember hokey dialogue. Um, I wasn't convinced by Ian Donnelly. Um, that's Jeremy. What's he called? Jeremy Renner, the guy who plays Hawkeye in the Avengers movies, as you'll know. Um, yeah. uh, but um, is he the physicist? He was man physicist. Yeah, man yeah. physicist, girl linguist, girl linguist. What's going to happen? Who can tell? Um, and Forrest Whitaker. Mm, yeah, meh. <clears throat> so yeah, what do you give it out of five? Ten. We do out of ten. What do you give it out of ten then? I'm really struggling with this because I can't honestly say that it's a really terrible film mm. because actually the sci-fi elements, and I quite enjoy the idea, right? Yeah. But as I say, I think that the execution on the idea was as bad as it could possibly be. Huh. And <sighs> Make them pay for that, John. Make them pay. So I would give it, like, no stars. Out of, out of 10 for that. But then never, I don't want to be too mean to a bunch of other people that were involved in the film that thought up some stuff. Like, yeah, okay, the the, the um the aliens and their little inky language, you know, yeah, clearly <laughs> clearly they're squids or whatever, but yeah, okay, I, I quite like that sort of thing. Mm. The spaceship <clears throat> design, well, I suppose they just, yeah, it's not very interesting, but... Uh, they're just saucers, but on their yeah, end. Yeah, on their end, yeah. Okay, so the aliens are all right. I'm going to give the you know creature designers out there who are actually the most likely people to be listening to this very podcast. I guess that that's good. You did a, you did an all right job, and I don't want to give you the, your film a zeros for that. And the central idea I quite like, mm. and I would like to see more films made about these sorts of crazy ideas. So I don't want to discourage films being made about with crazy plots like this. Yeah. So you're going to up your zero to a. I'm going to give it four. Four, that's not so bad. Okay, yeah, fair enough. Um, I don't remember much of the stuff you're talking about. I remember it being a bit gloomy. I remember feeling that, uh, obviously I'm a parent, so I've got you know, emotional attachment to the idea of children and their death. But um, I, I felt that that was kind of a cheap shot that basing a film around like you should you should really have kids because that would just make you a better person. I sort of took that away from it, which uh, I just I just think that's... On the one hand, I kind of feel that's true to a degree. I think I, I know I'm different for being a parent, but um, also, yeah, it's like I don't think that's like a sort of particularly worthy message to put in a movie. Well, I think their message. I mean, I think you could take that away from it, but I think their message was meant to be: if you knew all this in advance, would you still do it? Right. Yeah. And the answer is: well, yes, yeah. you would. 
And I find I find that yeah I find that slightly annoying the fact that they can't just yeah it's still it's this awkward thing where it's like you can't just make a movie about scientists doing some sciencey stuff and discovering stuff it's even some hugely profound important stuff like getting to talk to aliens for the first time you have to put in this human angle of well she might be a scientist that's doing this stuff but she's also a mother and uh, that's a crucial part of you know what it's like they can't. I feel sort of almost bad for saying that, but it's, but it's like, come on, why can't why can't you just like have some automaton without a social life and just <laughs> yeah, like a real real sciencey type person. Well, yeah. No, because there aren't many people like that. There are some, obviously, but um, it's normal. It it should be good to have to be a human, but um, but yeah, the, why the film? I I think I think if something that intense was going to happen, seriously, we all know that those of us who have work that that we get immersed in you know that there are times when for weeks and possibly even months you're immersed in that and you have to ignore the other stuff don't you think that you could make a story where someone literally shuts out almost everything else like no i can't think about family i'll see you in a year when this is done i seriously have to do that and no i'm not gonna socialize i'm not gonna have relationships romances and stuff um because i have to concentrate on this and you and and if it was something that big and that profound and that important and that absorbing then uh, maybe you would you would like no i'm gonna think about this every night and bloody hell you'd be boring but um well, I watch chimpanzees all day, and then I go home and write about chimpanzees, and then when I go to bed, I sleep about chimpanzees. Well, you must be the most boring woman alive. But um, yeah, why, why can't they? Why can't they do a film like that? So yeah, but it's one- the same thing films suffer with. Like they're like they're running from the aliens or the monster or whatever, and suddenly they have to have a really intense conversation about their private lives where they have to stop running. Like, oh yeah. my god. Filmmakers, yeah. can you not find a better way around this? Because it's exactly. just irritating. It doesn't increase the drama for me. It just makes it more annoying. So, once again, Hollywood, when are you going to give us your money? And, <laughs> um, yeah, given that I don't remember a lot of the things that you've discussed there, and they do sound very irritating, and I'm sure I would have noticed them at the time, um, I'm going to give it 6 out of 10. Because I yeah. don't, rem- I did enjoy it in general. I enjoyed, I enjoyed the principle. I enjoyed some of the some of the things, like some of the concepts, like the fact that you know they go into a zero g thing, and there's that bit where they jump into the like tunnel, and it then becomes not a tunnel. Uh, it's not a vertical shaft. It then becomes you know a horizontal tunnel. Touches like that were quite nice. With and a nice little heptopod- sex bit in there too, where she's the only nice- one that needs to help jumping. Oh, I can't even remember that. And all the dudes just jump. Oh, okay, because yeah. women can't jump, really. Um, <laughs> okay, so um, yeah, well, that was very interesting. And also, she's super emotional and breathing a lot. <sighs> no, women were women. I, uh, you know, I feel bad about giving it four stars. I'm actually <clears throat> no, I'm going to revise this down. I'm going to give it two <laughs> because I feel like it's pretension. Just. You have to judge this on a level what they were going for, and that it's like increasing your bets. You bet big, you lose big, and they lost big. Right. So if we just keep talking, it will go back to zero. So it's uh, possible, no, because some some of the people involved in the film deserve some credit. Okay. <laughs> so there you go. That was Arrival, which some of you might remember from many distant months ago. <clears throat> What else did we say? No, no, no. They'll probably remember. The reason we're talking about it now is because it's come out on what we used to call come out on video, which has now oh, yeah, come yeah. out on Netflix and iTunes and places. So. I've got Netflix now. 
I don't know whether it is on Netflix. It's on iTunes. So there'll be another wave of people that are watching it, right? Yep. We just got Moana, which I love. <laughs> is it good? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's good. I wish yeah. they could make adult films as good as kid films. I would be much, much happier. Because mm. kids' films are good, generally Some speaking. Of them are. Yeah. Uh, but a yeah. lot of them, yeah, but even, yeah, your average kid film is a lot better than your average adult film. <clears throat> and the good ones are really good. The bad mm. ones are like, they might be annoying or a bit dumb or whatever, they're still watchable. Mm. <laughs> Have you seen Zootopia or no. Zootropolis, whichever, whatever you want to call it? I like that as well, apart from that crazy gazelle with the human hips which is i know there's a reason why she looks we like should that, probably talk about some of these things because often they actually involve animals right zootopia slash zootropolis definitely does lots of the kids so films have animals in them yeah and because uh the the what the um the new pixar disney films the all of them i've probably said this before i've probably said this before on the podcast since frozen that was the one where i first noticed it Traditionally, Disney films involving princesses, the main female characters, traditionally, they were girl films. And uh, they, they didn't make any contrivances to say we've got to include boy stuff. Not that, they're, not that I'm saying there should be girl stuff versus boy stuff, but you know what I mean when it comes to these kinds of films. Today, it feels to me like these a lot of these films do have a main female character. Moana is all about a... Um, a girl but um they they don't come across as films that are made for young girls it's like they've got they've got stuff in them that girls think is great but a boy can watch it and not not once think that this is not made for me or this is made for girls they've they i don't want to say they necessarily include compelling like male role models to balance it out because they have those in them anyway they always have like you know a dad type character or a macho character or like cool animals or whatever they they would have that anyway but they are just so good at making a film that basically appeals to anyone that um well it, you, it, yeah you know what happened there of course is pixar showed everyone the light right you can make a film that everyone enjoys including adults you just have to be good and you have to think mm. about it really hard and write it mm. carefully and it works and yes. disney realized this and that's why they bought pixar because they saw that Pixar... It wasn't <clears> the computer animation. Although I think that was part of it. It was the the style of making films and the films that were for everybody, right? Because adults have to sit through kids' films and they're much more likely to take them to a kids' film that they know is going to be good. That's true. That's true. So it probably, so in that case, it probably would have started with like Toy Story yep. then. Because all the Pixar films, all of them are really strong with the exception of Cars... Meh, take it or leave it. The Good Dinosaur reviled widely for good reasons. And Planes, again, take it or leave it, but I quite enjoyed Planes and the sequel. <laughs> Planes too. <laughs> <laughs> Cars too, as well, I thought it was really good. Yeah, but, exactly. Um, I mean, he, as I'm saying, even the bad ones, I think it's fine. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I, I like Monsters, Inc., which has uh, got, got some weird stuff in it, some problems with it, but uh, generally pretty good. And, okay, right. Yeah, need to wrap up because I'm running out of time. Um, yeah, so there you go. That's our take on that's John's take on Arrival. Hmm. Uh, which um, okay, uh, we've discussed TetsuCon. Come to TetsuCon. Anything else we need to talk about? Uh, <clears throat> no. Uh, remember, you can still buy Dinosaurs: How They Lived and Evolved by Darren Nation, Paul Barrett. You should get that. It's uh 
it's it's amazing how few books sell in the world it's amazing it's like even a book that's considered a, a book that you think would do well so get it the natural history museum the natural history museum in london one of the most famous museums in the world people think of the museum they probably think of dinosaurs in the top two or three things they think about this is the museum's dinosaur book. And I'm not going to say the numbers or I'm not going to discuss figures at all. But the number that have sold to me is like, really? <laughs> That's it? Oh, okay, fine. Wow, I'm really surprised. Um, was Hunting hunting Monsters uh, out as an ebook? I recently got the, the, uh, the figures on how well that did prior to uh, December. And uh, that has sold as an ebook the same number that the Natural History Museum dinosaur book has as a proper book book that you can buy in a museum. So, uh, wow, the world's a strange place. Um, <clears throat> yeah. Royalty statement. First time I've ever received one, ever. I've published about 20 books. The first time I've ever got a royalty statement. Royalties are mostly mythical for those of you who don't do books. Um, well, especially if you don't negotiate your contracts correctly. Ah. <laughs> Just give me the money straight up. Stupid money and figures and stuff. Yeah. Yeah, but ebooks sell. People don't realise this, but they do. They sell in big numbers, right? And um, yeah, you know, this is our experience with all yesterdays and Cryptozoologicon as well. Probably yeah, about we half the sell. half the sales are ebooks. Yeah. <clears throat> so okay. Yeah. Right. Okay. Um, and we shall see you next time. Bye. Bye. A reading from The Making of Bigfoot, The Inside Story by Greg Long. As I listened to Vilma Radford, now an old woman, recount her story, I sawed at the egg foo yang on my plate in a futile attempt to slice off a portion. To my left, Radford sat. She was twisting the head of a fork into a clump of limp noodles. To Radford's left, Pat sat, sipping a glass of ice water. We were in the private corner of an empty banquet room in the Bamboo Terrace, a Chinese restaurant on West Knob Hill Boulevard in Yakima. Radford was buying us lunch. Large plates mounded with food lay before us on a lazy Susan between Vilma and me sat the tape recorder it's red light glowing this was a red letter day for Radford so she had doled herself up she wore a finely knitted black sweater with gold metallic threads and a plastic necklace festooned with black red and white baubles dotted with dark speckles gold looped earrings inset with artificial pearls dangled from her earlobes her thin wiry hair was freshly dyed a coal black rouge colored her pale sagging cheeks she had wielded a black tip pencil to thicken her thin eyebrows Stacked next to Radford's plates were Manila folders chock full of information. When we first joined her at the table, she told us she had worked all through the previous day and evening, and even the morning of the interview, gathering and photocopying the material. My briefcase on the chair next to me held my own file on the Radford case. My knife finally ripped through the egg foo young. And what happened next? I said. <laughs> Radford chewed for a while. The driver was drunk. Her moist, rosy pink lips parted to reveal yellowing, crooked teeth. She said in a tremulous voice, 
He owned a shoe store in Toppenish. Sergeant Gordon had been chasing him from Sunnyside. The van hit my back bumper. I remember yelling, God help us, twice. And George screamed, brace yourself, brace yourself. The car bounced back off the fence. In the meantime, the van went through the fence and broke it down. And then I went through the opening on two wheels. That van drove the car 400 feet. Are you sure you don't want something to eat? She asked Pat. That's okay, I'll eat something later. She's diabetic, I explained. She has to eat on a schedule. <laughs> she already had a snack before we came here. I guess you were hurt pretty bad, huh? I lifted the fork and bit into the egg foo young, which instantly filled my mouth with a taste of paper. Radford's gnarled hands shook slightly as she poured tea into her cup. I was thrown towards the door and window of the car and struck my ankle on the clutch. It hurt really bad. My car ended up in the middle of the road. I had a hundred therapy treatments on my neck. The taut flesh on her jaws flexed as she chewed. The doctors gave me shots using four-inch needles, but none of my bones was broken. The good Lord has to be with us. So your kids were okay, I asked. Martha and George still have back problems today. Her voice had a nasal intonation. In November, I ended up in the hospital from a heart attack. The doctor said it was my nerves. I choked down the egg foo young. The pale gray slices of pork on the tray in front of me looked limp and cold. After several attempts, I managed to drive my fork into one. I swear. I swear. <laughs> 